Chinatown produce is actually much better than a lot of our grocery store chains. There's actually a whole network selling to Asian markets. They are able to buy a multitude of different like bok choy, Chinese broccoli. Like we love eating a lot of different types of vegetables, not just kale, mm-hmm. not just spinach. And because of that, it supports these small farms that can grow all of these varieties of different produce, which also helps their soil. I'm Jane Z, and this is Farm to Future, the podcast all about eating better for the planet. Hello from sunny San Francisco. For the past few days, I've been eating my way through this delicious city and meeting with friends old and new, including today's guest, Annika Wu. Wow, I did not intend for that to rhyme, but they don't call me Jay-Z for no reason. So I actually met Annika for the first time today in real life, and we met up at this new bone broth place called Trad Bone Broth. Now picture this, matcha latte, but with bone broth. I know it sounds wild and I was skeptical, but honestly, it was incredible. As were all the different flavors I tried. Shout out to David and his brother at Trad. Go check them out. Now, if anyone knows her way around the Bay Area food scene, it is Annika. She's trained as a whole animal butcher and she's the founder of Bon Jerk, a line of Asian spice jerky made from regeneratively sourced meat. The tasu flavor is my favorite, but I have to say the black garlic beef and the mala are just as amazing, even for someone who can't handle spice. I appreciate Bon Jerk on so many levels because you don't see a ton of Asian flavored jerky out there in the U.S. market, not to mention regeneratively sourced jerky. I truly felt like I stumbled across a unicorn when I found Annika and Bonjerk. It's like the Asian foodie scene and the farm-to-table scene both run so deep, but never the twain shall meet. Or at least it's rare to find today. So I was stoked to get Annika on the show and have her share her story of how she ended up here and what she's learned being in the meat industry as a newcomer, as a first-gen immigrant, and as an Asian-American woman. If you're new here, welcome, welcome. My name is Jane Z. I'm the food detective behind this show. If you like trying new sustainable food brands like Bon Jerk, definitely stick around and subscribe. I'd love to hear what you think over on Instagram at farm.2.future. All right, on to the show. We are live here with Annika Wu. I'm so excited to have you here. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So happy to be here. I am excited for this conversation for so many reasons. I've had the chance to try your jerky and it is amazing. It literally reminds me of my dad's cooking. Um, But on a deeper, more personal note, I've been struggling to find other Asians slash Asian Americans in the regenerative food space. I'm curious if you found a similar experience. Yeah, there's not many. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's interesting. I think when I introduce myself to people in the industry, they're also very shocked to hear, you know, especially that I come from the whole animal butchery side of the industry. There's just literally like a handful of Asian Americans in the wider sense of like the whole agricultural space. I mean, but it makes sense because I think that 
a lot of the reason why there's not a lot of diversity in our industry is because of land ownership. We don't have a lot of Asian Americans who actually own land. And if they do, it's been very recent. You know, it's like the people, especially in the Bay Area, where they used to work in the tech industry and then they're able mm. to have the, you know, finances to actually buy land or to acquire land or they're like renting it from someone else. And then it's like, it's all very new generation. That is so interesting. I hadn't actually thought about it as a property and land ownership question. In my head, it's been more of like a branding piece where I do know like parents of Asian friends who have farms and they may even be organic vegetable farms and things like that, but they don't brand themselves as like farm to table or, you know, whatever it is. I think part of it is a language and cultural barrier. And part of it is just like not knowing how to brand yourself in the space. But I think you point to something super relevant, which is people just haven't been here long enough to accrue that wealth to own that kind of property. Yeah. And I do think I agree with you on the sense that branding is also part of it because sometimes when I go to the farmer's market, I'll meet, you know, a company or a farm and it's an Asian American family who grows like the Thai chilies and the bok choy, but they're still just like, just within that like farmer's market atmosphere. And if mm. they did know how to like brand and like use marketing, I'm sure that more people would know of them and support them. But that's also another thing. It's like these farmers and ranchers, they don't have the time to focus on branding and marketing, which is something that I've talked about to, you know, other folks in the industry where how do we help and support ranchers and get their names out there? For me as a business owner, like I love being in this business because like and I can't wait until the day where I can always, you know, work directly with ranches and farmers because I want to highlight them. And I do think mm. that I have the capability to do that as a brand and also as like a younger generation person to kind of support them in that way, too. It is really mm. important. Yeah, I definitely want to hear about how you find and work with the ranches and farms that you do work with. But taking a step back, would love for you to share the origin story of Bon Jerk. And even going back a little bit, you know, your background isn't in the food industry. I saw that you studied econ back in the day and you've worked in film production for eight years before transitioning into whole animal butchery. Can you Give us a little backstory of how you wound up where you are today. Yeah, absolutely. I, yeah, I was not in food at all prior to this. And I grew up in Kansas. So I spent my whole life like trying to figure out where I belong. So even going back to college, I literally majored in every major that you could think of. Like, pre-med, I sat in a heart surgery, like I took it to that point. Whoa. I was in marketing, I was in nutrition, like stats, like anything. I was just really trying to figure out where I belonged in this world and like what my interests were. And it took me a long time to get to this point. But yeah, and after I graduated from college, I went into the film industry and worked in commercial film production for eight years. And I knew for a long time that that wasn't where I wanted to be in the future. 
that industry was just so grueling. I mean, I mm. lived around my alarm clock for all those years and everything revolved around our clients, the projects, and I didn't have a life. Even though I learned so much through working in that space, and I do think that as I'm growing my business, I'm understanding what I want to do and what I don't do, especially when I do bring in people to help me and um, work with me, like what kind of pressure I would want to put on them or not put on them and how to really treat people in a way that's going to allow them to not hate their lives, you know, working yeah. for our company. I want to make sure that we're creating a really good space for uh, our employees. And then, so I was in film production. I knew I wanted to get out and I kind of just stumbled into jerky. Like I've always loved meat growing up. Like I was a fat baby when I was, when I was like <laughs> eight and a half pounds. And my mom is tiny. Have you like ever oh my gosh. She's just like, she's shorter than me and I'm five three. And you know, I was like a fat baby always eating all the time, but I, stumbled on this jerky that my friends introduced me to. And it was this piece of jerky that you could only get like at this specific shop in the middle of nowhere. So mm. we would basically hoard it every time we were like driving by, which is not very often. And then I used to freeze it, like keep it in the freezer and only take it out. Like when I was just craving the jerky. And then oh even God. when I did, I would just take out little you know, slivers because I just didn't want it to run out. And it was this like wow. interesting, yeah, like it was really interesting to me because I don't think I've ever had that kind of experience where I was really truly obsessed with one product in the mm. food industry. So I started to kind of just take a step back and be like, oh, okay, this is like really fascinating and being really curious about this product, which led me to just do a simple Google research on like, what you know, like, what kind of meat is this? And how did they make this? And through that research was me discovering this whole side of the meat industry that I always kind of knew about in the back of my mind, but didn't really ask too many questions and kind of turned a blind eye on. But it's like, you know, not treating the animals well, and not taking care of the land. And that was kind of the beginning. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Did you try to find the recipe for that jerky or just try to recreate it on your own? Yeah. So I actually called the manager of that, um, that place and I was, I emailed them too. And I was like, Hey, would it be cool if I came by and toured your facility? Cause I'm obsessed with your jerky and I just want to know how <laughs> you guys make it. And obviously yeah. I did not hear back. I mean, I was just this like naive, like girl who was just obsessed with their products and they were just like, I, I heard nothing from them. I mean, mm. you know, I went to the shop even afterwards and tried to like see if I could talk to the manager and they were just a little bit like weirded out by the fact that I was oh. asking for a tour. But this place also, you know, got some attention because there's a lot of people who are protesting against the, the treatment of their cattle and all of that stuff. Oh, so, um, interesting. I can understand why they would be a little bit off put. Yeah. Best. Okay. Interesting. I was imagining like a small mom and pop shop, but this is like a well-known place. Yeah. So this is a, this is a place where, um, and it's not like, I'm not talking about like Tyson or anything like that. They're not on the side of the industry where it's just like horrible, but I think now looking back from everything I'm learning and what could be done, they just weren't doing it as well as they could. Right. 
I remember growing up, we ate a lot of pork floss, rosong, and I was so excited to learn that you make pork floss in a like ethical and just better way. Because growing up, there was a point where we stopped eating it because we saw on the news that they were using essentially sick pigs and using them to make the pork floss in Taiwan, which is the stuff that we got shipped in Canada. And so cold turkey, we just stopped buying it overnight. And I just always assumed like, you know, that's one of the products is it's always just going to be like bad quality meat. Maybe that's the way to describe it or just like unethical. But then when I discovered Bonjerk and what you were doing, I was like, oh, well, there is a way to do it. You just got to connect the right dots and do the legwork of sourcing from the right places. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's so complicated because, you know, we can sit here and bash all of the ranches that are not doing it correctly and not even just in the United States, but like around the world. But yeah. honestly, like one of the things that I've learned throughout this whole journey is empathy. You just have to like really mm -hmm. try to understand everyone's position in this industry and like how they got, how we got here. You know, these ranches in, in Taiwan, there was probably something that led those people to make the decisions that they're doing, whether it's, mm. hey, like, I need to feed my family. So we've just got to get this animal processed and like, you know, and not saying it's like good or bad, but I always try to like think about situations like that from the ground level and understand. But yeah, it, it is every pork floss company that I've researched because I grew up eating pork floss too. I haven't been able to like trace it back really to a specific farm and know what their practices are. Yeah. It's a big question mark in the Asian, in the Asian industry. I think too, like scale has something to do with it, where if you're a small family farm, it's like a little bit easier to make those calls of like, oh, okay, this is a direct trade-off between feeding my family versus not. Whereas at a large company, the decision makers are removed from the lives of the animals, I guess. And it, like one decision affects, say like, hundreds of thousands or millions of lives. That's when it gets a little dicey, I think. Yeah. And it definitely is. And this is actually something that I'm thinking about all the time right now, because I'm actually trying to move our productions into a co-packing facility, which is like the next step to scaling our productions and how to keep and make sure that we are still transparent about like where we are sourcing our meats to be able to source the quality of meats that we want and have like an eye on every aspect of production. And, you know, once you're handing over your production to another company, it does get a little, a little tricky. So I'm definitely learning mm. like once you're scaling your business, what, what that looks like. Okay. Interesting. I'd be curious to hear about that process. We got sidetracked a little bit. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Moving back to your origin story. So you had this jerky. You tried to call up this place that makes the jerky that you loved. How did you decide to kind of recreate your own version of the jerky? I read somewhere that you went and took a butchery class and that's sort of how you got started. But tell us more about that. Yeah. So after I did all that research on this one ranch and I found out like kind of the truths about like where this meat was coming from, 
that's when I decided, I was like, oh, I'll just see if I can make my own recipe and make this jerky myself because then I'll be able to just have it on hand instead of having Mm. to drive like hours away. So that's when I decided to just go to a local butcher shop. And that was literally, and I'm a little ashamed to say this, but that was the first time I've really like walked into a butcher shop to buy meat. I typically Mm. before that would get my meats from the local grocery store, like Safeway or Lucky's or, you know, these chain stores. And I remembered walking into this shop God, I still remember like the feeling it was like a cloudy day. That's how ingrained it is in my mind. And walking in there and feeling so overwhelmed because I had no idea what I was doing. I mean, I obviously was not prepared. I didn't even know which meats to buy. I just knew like I needed something lean, you know, and I asked them to like slice it for me. And I just felt really powerless in that situation. Mm -hmm. I just didn't want to feel that way again, walking into a butcher shop and So once I bought the meat, you know, I started doing experiments. And as I was kind of like going through this whole phase of like, you know, just having fun and doing these experiments at home, it started to kind of become something that I really, really loved and enjoy. And I started thinking like, whoa, like there's no East Asian flavors in jerky. Like it would be cool if I created this Mm. like pho flavor jerky. And um Yeah. So literally just like transpired from there. And that's when I decided like, you know, if I'm serious or even just semi-serious about going into this meat industry, like I should know what I'm doing. And then I decided to take a good class at this local butcher shop, this place called Fatted Calf. And it was an all woman knife, pig and meat butcher class. And it was in Napa, California. And that's kind of how it, this whole like journey of me going into butchery started. I know education's a big part of your work now too. I didn't realize there was like this whole little cottage industry around women and ranching and women butchers. Are you involved in those circles? Yeah, I, I'm trying now, even though I'm like four years into this industry, like to continue to be involved in the whole agricultural aspect of meat and not just be like a business owner, because I think there's something really powerful, one of being in a space that's like so supportive. And Woman in Ranching is one of those organizations where they've created a beautiful space where women who are in uh, working on the land can come to and feel supported, can be vulnerable can Mm. um, talk about their struggles, and also to feel acknowledged and, you know, to know that there are other women in this space. It's been like, actually pretty incredible. I've been to two of their circles, and both circles I and gatherings, I've taught the whole animal butchery workshops, we would get the animal straight from the ranch. And then I would teach, you know, everyone there how to break down the animals. So it's, wow. it's been so amazing. Yeah. You guys made, uh, it was, was it a goat this time? Yeah. 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 We were just in Colorado and we were at the High Lonesome Ranch for a few days and butchered down one of their goats. Sounds amazing. And you salted yeah. this, uh, the fur, what do you call it? The goat? hide. Yeah. The, the hide. Goat. Yes. Yeah. Melissa, the ranch host, she 
knows how to like just do basic salting and like drying of these hides and and fur. So she was like showing us how to do it. And she was just, it was just so funny. She was like, yeah, it's really simple. You just like, you know, get the hide and then you just like put salt on it for a couple of days and then like take it into a bathtub and you like wash it off with, and I'm just like, um, what? Egg wash and like wash it with some egg wash and you just let it dry. And wow. she said, as like a bathroom rug. I'm like, that is so cool. <laughs> that is very cool. Literally farm to like farm to floor, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. That's awesome. I wish I could go. I I'm going to try to make one of, their circles they sound just so wholesome and amazing and like the people if it's like all Annika's like I'm down (laughs) yeah you should definitely come let me know if there's like one that you want to we also give scholarships to to anyone who you know can't afford the prices to come to these events so that's always an option for people too so they always Mm -hmm. try to be as inclusive as they can which I just really love about them. Yeah, so important. Oh, I did want to ask, what is the difference between whole animal butchery versus traditional butchery? I mean, traditional butchery, from my understanding, they're pretty much the same thing. The whole idea and premise is really like farm to table, right? So it's the understanding of you're bringing in an animal, you're respecting it, And then you're using every and you're able to basically break down the animal and utilize every part of this animal and eat it. I mean, if we're talking about the sense of like, what's a traditional way to butcher down an animal? I mean, that goes deeper into different regions where like, let's say when you go to Europe, they'll have their own traditional way of like butchering down an animal that's specific to the cuts that folks are used to eating, just like in China, right? Like there's different cuts in, you know, China and in Taiwan and in Korea, like how they break down animals based on what consumers like. But, you Hmm. know, when we're talking about whole animal butchery and traditional butchery, like I've always thought that it's pretty much correlated. So in your practice, and I guess for Bon Jerk, you follow like a certain regions type of butchering, Yeah, so it's pretty much like the Western way of bridging down animals. So all of my experience comes from working through like butcher shops. So I did some training at Flesher's in New York when they were still opened. And then I went back to Kansas and did the majority of my whole animal butchery there. So everything that I've learned is specific to what the U.S. consumer base would typically see in a butcher shop. Got it. And when you make your jerky, what parts of the animal are you using? So right now I'm using like the hip portion of the animal. So for my pork, I would buy the whole hind leg minus like the shank and the trotter. And then from there, the top or the outside round, which is like the butt area, um, uh-huh. <laughs> the outside butt area. That's where I would turn into like the whole muscle jerky. So those mm. would go into my core jerky product line, and then I would take the bottom round, which has a little bit more of like connective tissues and things that just would make it really hard to create whole muscle jerky, and turn that into pork floss. And then I would take any like fat and turn that into lard. 
Very Similar cool. with like our beef jerky too. So I would buy the top round from the beef jerky, which is like the outside portion of the hip area. Right now I'm only using specific cuts only because I'm kind of at like full capacity. I used to actually only use the outside rounds or the top rounds in beef, but now I'm kind of like expanding it to buying the whole hip portion of the pork because I've like been able to formulate the pork floss recipe. And then what I'm trying to do is really like slowly grow that into like, all right, so what does it look like if I purchase the shoulders? Like, could I turn that maybe into like sausage one day? And then like, Mm. hopefully eventually being able to buy the whole animal and create dry products out of every part of the animal. Oh, wow. Yeah. Growing up, I remember one of the things that's like a specialty from the region my family's from, which is Hangzhou in Zhejiang. It's called Huo Tui, which I think literally means like smoked leg or fire leg, <laughs> but it's like essentially a smoked pork leg and they cut it into slices, almost like prosciutto, but not as thin as prosciutto. And it's like little meat slices that you can throw in like a stir fry or noodle dish that could be a product to experiment with. Uh, yes. And once I expand like my meat capacity, I'm going to reach out to you and we'll, we're yes. definitely going to talk about different things that we can make. Yes. Sounds amazing. Um, how did you come up with the recipes you have now? So all of my recipes and flavors are inspired by dishes that I loved growing up. So like char siu is our sweet and savory flavor. And that's inspired by, you know, my Sunday dim sum outings with my family growing up. Um, and char siu was inspired by the cha siu baos, which is those mm-hmm. white buns with the pork inside. Yes, so so I literally take the recipe of the dish And then that's always like the basis for all of my R&D. And I would just gather all the ingredients for that dish. And then I would just rework it and rework it into a jerky recipe. And like, you know, mala Sichuan is our spicy flavor. And it's like one of our most popular too. And that's inspired by Mapo Tofu. So you'll Mm. see if you look at the ingredients list, like it is very, very close to an actual Mapo Tofu dish so people could literally take my flavors and like my ingredients that you'll see in the back and kind of like just use that as the basis to make the dishes recipe if they wanted to that's amazing yeah i just had some really good mapo tofu the other day if you're ever in boston check out my happy hunan kitchen or i'll take you there and we'll get mapo tofu it's so good it's so delicious like oh I could eat that every day. My just parents warms. like used to make that all the time. Um, speaking of your parents, how did they feel about you transitioning into the food industry? <laughs> they were very, they were very confused and they were very worried. I mean, because we're talking about me coming from like making real money to making no money at all. <laughs> so I, and when I was working in Kansas, I basically moved back home to their house and, you know, was making minimum wage, which was like $13 an hour. And this is like yeah, 10 years into your career it, as a commercial. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. So I was working for eight years and this was like my ninth year wow. of just like working as a professional. So my parents were very very scared (laughs) oh as any like you know you know it's like 
and everyone knows like Asian like immigrant parents, like all they want is your, you know, to be successful and like not have to worry about money like they did and have a stable life. So I totally understand like where they were coming from and like where their fears came from too. And, but I've always known like from the beginning, like I knew I wanted to start Bon Jerk like before mm. going into butchery. I just have always been like a slow builder. I always take the weirdest route to get to where I want to go. <laughs> so, you know, even though they were nervous, they've always been like so supportive and anything that I would need, they were always there. And I think now mm. that I've launched the business and am slowly like progressing, they're a little bit less worried about it. Right. <laughs> right. It's like, this is a thing now. Like you've actually yeah. launched the company. Yeah. And when they were like tasting the product, like, you know, they could see and understand like why I'm doing what I'm doing. So they're definitely, they're definitely much more relaxed about it now. Have you had conversations with them about the ranching side and the farming side and, and sourcing meat? Like what have those conversations been like? Not as much as I would want to, but I also know that with my parents' generation, I don't want to just go at them and be like, hey, you should just buy meat from good places. Like stop buying mm. meat from these like Asian grocery stores in Kansas. And not even talking about my parents, right? It's like people who have their own reasons of buying meat from wherever they are. If it's not from regenerative, like we can't just go to folks who are in like the working class and kind of judge them. And so right. I've been very careful about how I approach these conversations with my parents when it comes to like finances and regenerative meat, like regenerative meat is just so expensive or like meat that comes yeah. from good farms and for good reason. I would occasionally just kind of be like, hey, you know, if you're getting beef or chicken or eggs, like maybe consider going to either the farmer's market here or go to, we have like a Whole Foods nearby. And I was like, maybe mm. you just go to Whole Foods because then you'll know at least like a little bit of where it's coming from. I think they're slowly from watching me really promote good products. They're also like in the back of their minds, always thinking about that too, as they're like shopping. My dad was actually just in town for a week and we had a little belated Canadian Friendsgiving on Sunday night and he and I went and did some grocery shopping. So Whole Foods is the nearest grocery store and we go there out of convenience, but also because, you know, there's baseline, some vetting of the products. And so we get all our stuff and my dad's like, don't you have any Chinese supermarkets close by? Like everything would be half the price there. And it's like, yeah, but like kind of the point is to source a little bit better. But I also, I don't know, I feel weird about telling him these things. I, I want to honor the fact that he actually grew up as a farmer and like so much of what I learned about food and cooking is from my dad. And so it's kind of like, I'm not one to tell him where to source his food from, even though when it comes to navigating modern supermarkets and labels and things like that, I probably have done a little more digging than he has. You know, it's interesting because I'm starting to read this book called Farm to Canal by Valerie Imbrig or Imbruce. She's done a lot of research on 
Chinatowns and produce and like why produce and meats is so cheap in Chinatown. There's this huge misconception about like, especially like Chinese cuisine, everyone just expects our cuisine to be cheap or like our dishes need to be cheap and the quality is like low. When the truth is Chinatown produce is actually much better than a lot of our grocery store chains that are out there. And the reason mm. is because there's actually a whole network that is built around like selling to Asian markets. And the reason why Asian markets get a better deal on these like farm produce, it's because they are able to buy a multitude of different like bok choy, Chinese broccoli, like we love eating a lot of different types of vegetables, not just kale, mm -hmm. not just spinach. And because of that, it supports these like small farms around mm. them that can grow all these varieties of different produce, which also helps their soil. These wow. like small farms and this whole network basically sells all of their produce to Chinatowns across the U.S. Mm. And this extends not even just in the United States, but some Chinatown markets will buy, you know, these like amazing fruits from like Honduras, but like these are amazing like small farms. So what Valerie's done is she's visited like over 75 different farms that are connected in this network and have found that like, whoa, these are really amazing farms. But because of the stereotypes that are around like Chinatown and cheap produce, a lot of people think that it's, you know, badly sourced or something or that like they're not grown with quality in mind. So it's really fascinating. I think you would actually really enjoy this book because I think wow. this is something that actually not a lot of people talk about in terms of meat though. Like that's something I'm still like, I'm, you know, and I'm still reading this book, but like, I am so excited to kind of read through that too, because in the Asian culture, we eat every part of the animal and fresh is always best for us. And you know that like I grew up eating, like my dad used to buy live chickens from the farmer's market, kill it at home. And then, mm. you know, we would cook it that night. So in our whole culture, we value like freshness. We, we want fresh foods. We want fresh animals. But for some reason, everyone else looks at us like we don't want good quality. So mm -hmm. it's fascinating. Oh my gosh, you're blowing my mind right now with the farm to canal stuff. I need to read that book. That sounds fascinating. Yeah, Absolutely. I think you would really, really like that. And the reason, and just to touch up on that too, of like how these like Asian markets are able to price their products at a lower price. It's because, you know, if you're walking through Chinatown, you see the setup's not the same as like if you're walking through Whole Foods, right? Like they use cardboards to write the prices on. They use these mm -hmm. like wooden crates to put all their produce in. Like they don't use a lot of overhead and they don't need to right. because they're just selling vegetables. And like as Chinese <laughs> yeah. folks, we are very, very good at saving money and very good at like yeah. not needing to spend things like, you know, spend, spend money on things that are not necessary. So the overhead is low. Mm. So they only need to price their produce and meats at where they actually need to be able to make a living. And to build on that, a lot of Asians like who are living in like Chinatowns, their personal expenses aren't very high either. You know, and, I, and I'm not saying like that. I think that, you know, things are changing, but like they're just making enough money so then that they know that they could pay their rent, they can eat well, they can support their children. There's like a whole, whole thing around why Chinatown is so cheap, but 
I don't think mm. a lot of people know that the quality is is superb. Yeah, I mean, Chinese like Asians in general, but especially Chinese people, I feel like a really highly value food. Like food is our love language, and so it's got to be fresh. It's got to be high quality. So I yeah, I mean, I feel like the majority of foodie reviewers out there are like Asian Americans. <laughs> they are so passionate, and they will fight to the end. You know, if they find something that they love or that they don't love. Yeah, yeah. You're joining that circle. (laughs) I struggle with the money, like the pricing piece, because on the one hand, like you said, regenerative and good quality meat and protein is expensive and probably should be. But at the same time, I think good food needs to be accessible. As we're talking, like what comes to mind is like, you know, maybe fruits and vegetables is where we can kind of save costs with economy of scale. But maybe the animals that comes with a lot more of like the lives of the animals, like maybe that's where we need to just like honor the lives with our dollars. I don't know. How do you think about it? You know, I've never been the type of person to encourage people to like eat a ton of meat. There's a lot of talk out there about how like don't eat meat because that's like what's going to save climate change and that's what's better for the environment. But within our industry and if we want to actually make a difference, like we have to be able to support more ranches to convert their land so then we have better soil. I feel like why meat is like good meat is so expensive right now is because there's only a handful of ranches within the United States and around the world that are actually practicing raising livestock and like, you know, farming where the soil is actually like bringing in and drawing in carbon and actually contributing to the overall sequestering of carbon and helping our climate. So until we get to a point where there's a majority of ranches who are actually doing it, our costs are going to like still be like incredibly high. There's a tipping point where there's enough competition on the market of ranches that practice in this regenerative and more ethical way that it's like, in a sense, it's like simple supply and demand, right? But it comes with a lot of like education and convincing and politics to get folks to move that direction. Then like in, in the short term, I guess it's like those who can afford it will subsidize that transition. Yeah, I mean, and I think in any new thing that happens, like plant-based or like cellular meats that's starting to kind of come into our industry, like it always happens that way where everything does need to be a little bit more expensive because the costs are high. But let's say like 10 years down the line, I feel like there's going to be a point where it will be affordable because there's more access to ranchers who are raising good animals and raising like good crops, like then everything will just trickle into being able to provide better quality foods to a bigger, a wider audience, not just the upper class, but to the working class Mm -hmm. as well. I mean, Mm -hmm. yeah, I think about that all the time because there's a part of me as I'm building my company and just seeing my own prices, like for my products, I feel guilty for having to make it so expensive. And knowing that I can only hit, there's like a threshold for who I can provide my products to, like pork floss, right? Like 
so many people eat pork floss. It's like $3 for one container at the store. It's like super cheap. And I don't know where that meat comes from. And I wish that I could just like, you know, throw my <laughs> pork floss out there. But until I get it to scale and until like I as a business can figure out a way to decrease those costs and, you know, not pass it on to the consumers. It just sucks. That's just kind of how it's going to be for a while, I think. Some of the best eggs I've had are from a farm around here. And I think we paid like $10 or yeah, like $10 for a dozen. And I'm like, oh, crying inside. But also, you know, it's great quality food. And that's just the reality right now. Yeah, but I think, I like think you said, that, like things will change as your company scales and as the whole ecosystem grows. Yeah. And I do also think the important things, you know, it's like eggs are really important. I think that you should always, like, if you can, buy good eggs, like from mm. the ranches or just like, you know, because the chicken industry can get a little bit weird. If you have <laughs> from like commercial, I don't know what other... <laughs> words to describe that but yeah so I would say like definitely eggs and meat I would just say like if there's a way to just like get your hands on good products like do it for yourself like as a consumer where I guess like because now you're working with ranches like do you buy directly from those ranches too for your own meat yeah so like for my own personal consumption or for yeah your own I guess both Yeah. So for myself, I try to buy from farmer's markets, but Mm. to be honest, I really haven't had to buy any meat because I just like, I always eat meat from like being in the kitchen. (laughs) I will like take some trim and I'll just like fry it up in a pan and just like eat lunch and like dinner. I'm always there. (laughs) But um, whenever I can, I'll go to like local butcher shops and get meats there. For Bonjour, so I've been working with this amazing third-party distributor who works directly with regenerative ranches and pasture-raised farms, and they're called Keller Crafted Meats. Yeah, and I recently was able to get some pork from Richard's Grass-Fed, Carrie Richards, who is one of the owners. Like she has been at the forefront of just regenerative, like promoting regenerative agriculture. The great thing too about them is like they're really trying to get their products directly from their ranch to like grocery stores. And like, instead of having a third party company handle Mm. all of their meats, like they've been able to get it into institutions on their own, bringing back that power for their own ranch and going direct themselves, which is like amazing. You should look into them. But yeah, I source from Keller Crafted and Richards. And then I also source from Marin Sun Farms. The only reason why I'm working with third party distributors is because Working directly with ranches, I've found it's just so difficult as a small business because a lot of these ranches don't have the capacity to have their own transportation. So most of the ranches like around here are, you know, a couple hours away. So that would mean I would either have to drive out to them to pick up meats or like figure out a whole system to see like how to get their meats into my kitchen, which I just don't have the capacity to do. So it's just like a a lot of like logistics that as a small business, I won't be able to figure out until I get more financing or a transportation plan in place. I feel like if we check back, when we check back in like a year or so, you're going to have a lot of answers to these questions. 
Yeah, I hope so. Well, as we come to a close, I know you shared a couple tips for listeners on, you know, just make sure you source your eggs and your meat as well as you can. I guess any other parting words, like any advice you want to leave with listeners? I say just do the best that you can. A lot of people put a lot of guilt on folks who just like can't afford it or don't have access to good foods. Just do the best you can, whether it's just like buying a carton of eggs that comes from a farm that you can do research on, that you can find online to see how they're raising their animals. That's enough for now. And just ask a lot of questions. Like next time you're walking through a grocery store, you're looking at like this piece of steak or like this chicken, like ask the butcher behind the counter, like, hey, like, where does this meat come from? Like, do you know how this animal's raised? Just be curious about this industry. I love that. Yeah. (laughs) Be your own investigator. And I think that's such a good empathetic thought to say, you know, just do this one thing for now. And that is good enough. You know, you don't have to be perfect. I feel like when it comes to like sustainability things, everyone's always striving for perfection, but that's a moving target. So you just got to do what you can. I know. And I think that there's a lot of intimidation around this industry that we've built almost like a wall. You know, if you don't support this, then like you're not supporting this whole movement and it doesn't have to be intimidating, right? Like in the end, the whole goal is to get good food to everyone's plates, like not Mm. just the wealthy, not just like these people or those people, but like to everyone. It's going to be a slow process, but I, I definitely believe that we'll get there. Yeah. And it'll be delicious. We'll have a giant feast. Yes. <laughs> we'll have to do like a really great Friendsgiving one year. Yes. <laughs> and, like, oh my God. Following your Instagram and like seeing your stores and all of your food. And I'm just like, oh my God. Oh my God. Farm to Future Friendsgiving. Yes. Oh. Let's make that happen. Can you start doing events, please? I really want to. The question yeah. is where? <laughs> we'll do some scheming and figure it out. <laughs> I cannot wait. Yay! If listeners want to try Bon Jerk or stay in touch with your journey, where can they find you? Yeah, so I have my website, bonjerk.com. They can follow me on Instagram at bonjerk snacks. And yeah, that's where they can order on my website. Amazing. I recommend everybody try all the jerky flavors. They are incredible. Thank you so much for spending time with us, Annika. Yes. uh, Thanks so much, Jane. And that's a wrap. Thank you so much for tuning in. Remember to nourish your body and I'll talk to you next time.